VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Live from our nation's capital. President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion pandemic relief package. We're not going to hear any more about Operation Warp Speed. They're going to be calling it the COVID response. We're talking right now about 2024 jockeying amongst Republicans. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? The House has been voting for this stimulus package basically for months. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. And I'm Jeannie Shanzano in for Kevin Cirilli this snowy afternoon. And joining me today is Bloomberg contributor Rick Davis. And later we're going to talk to Norm Champ about the GameStop saga, which doesn't seem to stop at this point, and the SEC enforcement going forward. Some good news about the vaccine. We're going to talk more about that later, or the number vaccinated, I should say. But a lot to get to this afternoon, as over the weekend, a group of 10 moderate Republican senators pitched a smaller counteroffer to the president's COVID relief pack, a package rather. Their point was to stop the Democrats from using a reconciliation process to push the package through without any bipartisan support. Of course, their proposal was about $600 billion. That's about a third of what the president was offering at $1.9 trillion. And based on the reactions of Democrats over the weekend and into Monday, it appears that we're going to see a continuing standoff on this issue this week. Democrats continuing to threaten to use reconciliation and their majority vote to push the bill through without any GOP support. We heard more about this during a press conference on Sunday. Senator, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that the states are no longer able to wait for Republicans to put forward a new plan or to come to the table. And he said time is running out and they need to move forward. We have sound on that. We hope that we can move forward in a bipartisan way with our Republican colleagues cooperating. But we need big, bold action. And if we can't move forward, Uh, with them. We'll have to do it on our own. Also over the weekend, Senator Bernie Sanders told ABC's Martha Raddatz uh, that the dire need for the American people to uh, this issue to be addressed for the American people eclipsed the appeal of extensive bipartisan grappling. We have sound on that. The issue is not, you know, bipartisanship. We're not. The issue is, are we going to address the incredible set of crises and the pain and the anxiety which is in this country. 
And joining me to talk about how we are going to see this, if at all, move through this week, because, of course, next week starts the Senate impeachment trial. We have Rick Davis, Bloomberg contributor, partner at Stone Court Capital, former campaign manager for John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign, and also former Alaska Senator Mark Begich, strategic consulting advisor at Brownstein Hyatt Faye Farber and Shrek. I hope I hope Mark Senator that I got that all right. Um, welcome and thank you for joining us. Rick, thank let you. me start with you and ask you what you make of the Republicans proposal, this proposal from these 10 moderate Republicans over the weekend. Well, you know, President Biden swung the door open and said, hey, I want a bipartisan bill. Uh, and I, you know, the message to Republicans was, well, then you're not serious about the $1.9 trillion that you put on the table because there's no way you're going to get a bipartisan yes on that. So they came up with their own strategy, you know, and they want to be positive about something. It's not the old you know, Republican Party in the Biden or in the Obama administration where it was no to everything. And uh, and so uh, they took out, you know, the increase in uh, minimum wage and they took out state and local support. Uh, and and so that's their starting in position. So uh, the good news is uh, we're in an environment now so different than we were even you know six months ago where Republicans are actually invited up to the White House. Democrats would not have been invited up to the White House in the last term. And uh, and there might actually be a constructive dialogue. It may ultimately turn out to be politics, but at least we're starting in the right place. Senator, let me ask you, the the Biden administration has so far been reluctant to split this bill into two to handle, say, the vaccines and virus in one part and then other priorities in a separate piece. Do you see that changing as we move forward? I, I don't. And I think um, the reason is simple. Uh, my time there, when you take the most popular item, which is dealing with the vaccine out, then some of the other items uh, may not happen or will fall off later on in the sense that they won't deal with it. But I will say this. I, you know, I, I looked at the Republican plan and I and, you know, what's u- not unique about this is every time they've done uh, a COVID plan, there's always been the other plan, the lower value plan against, you know, there's a Republican number and then a Democratic number. Well, now you have it again. And what's probably going to happen is they're going to build up, not down uh, from the Republican number. Will they get to the 1.9 and try to get bipartisan? I'm not sure about that. I think the re- Democrats are very clear that they're not going to be patient as they learned. And I was there during the health care debate waiting six, seven months because Republicans would say over and over again, oh, we'll, we'll work with you, then they never did. So I think what's going to happen, my gut tells me, um, they'll, if necessary, they'll use re- reconciliation. But there's a couple pieces in the Republican plan that I know several of the more moderate Democrats have interest in, and that is the way they've scaled uh, the direct payment to those that are truly in need and those that are not in need don't get it. Um, the, excluding state and local Support is a non-starter for Democrats. And, you know, you can argue that revenue streams for states have been tax streams are about neutral, but local governments have taken a huge hit that is not reflected in those numbers and have not been talked about. If you notice, very few talk about the local government numbers because they are bad. It's the state numbers that have been kind of neutral uh, on the overall numbers, but local dollars have been hit 
pretty hard. So I, they're going to crawl up there. But you know what I've learned in this when I served in the Senate? Everyone loves to talk bipartisanship until they need something. And then they get their votes, line them up, and get busy. Senator, Hopefully this is Rick Davis. Uh, I think you make a really important point, and, uh, and, and I know you're coming from a lot of experience when it comes to uh, what it is we need at the local level uh, to combat uh, coronavirus, because we know in, in the previous administration, all the response to the virus was pushed down into the state and local area. And as a former mayor of Anchorage, Alaska, yep. give, give me a sense as to what pressure they've been under, because that I think people sometimes, they, they think state and local is just this big autonomous thing and billions of dollars going to be shoved in there to balance their budgets. And, you know, maybe you could give us a little more granularity to it, because I think if people really understood what's happening in cities like Alaska uh, or yeah. like Anchorage around the, the country, they, 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 they think differently potentially about this, this spend. Yeah, I agree. I mean, here, here's an example. Uh, and I'll use Anchorage. Anchorage Visitors Bureau, Visitor Center, Visitor Tax is 22 to $24 million. That's almost been 70% wiped out. Now, the state's not, doesn't benefit from that in any way. So the state income uh, or taxes related to that didn't, matter at all. Well, what does that mean for Anchorage? Well, that means they're going to be with probably about 80% of your money in local government spent on police, fire, street maintenance, education is your core expenditure. So when you start losing significant revenue streams, it's not about what people say, oh, that's that fluff. And so, no, 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 it's it's about like in the winter here, plowing streets, (laughs) making the streets safe, all those core things. The state's are much bigger and have a lot of more levers to pull and tax base to work off of and a variety of other things. But in local governments, it is direct. I mean, you know, I would bet right now in the Northeast and on the East where there's huge snowstorms, their budgets are going to get pinched because you cannot say we're not plowing the streets, right? Because you can imagine what that would be like. They're, people, they're going to go do their job. They're going to plow the streets. They're going to do what they need to do. But when they start running short on their last tail end of their calendar year, the public is going to feel it at some point versus state governments that much more have a lot more flexibility. Their their revenue streams are more neutral right now, balanced to a certain extent versus local governments that just when the money's gone, they're at the end of the trail. Right. There's no one else below them. That's it. Yeah, and Senator, I can attest to the amount of snow we are having here on the East Coast right now. Um, but Rick, let me ask yeah. you, um, are, so I feel almost like we've got a, a ticking clock over our heads as it pertains to this bill, not just because we have this March deadline, but also because, of course, next week starts this impeachment trial. And I can't imagine that it is going to be easy to work across the aisle while that's going on. What do you think can happen in the next few days to move this forward? Well, uh, Senator Begich was exactly right that uh, most Democrats we know, probably Chuck Schumer uh, and Nancy Pelosi, think they can get pretty much what they want with a Democrat House and a Democrat Senate uh, through reconciliation, maybe in March, maybe in April. So nothing immediate. Right. But what the Republicans have is maybe their only advantage right now is there, there are enough of them, 10 Republicans, who are meeting with the president today to be able to get you cloture, which is that magic number you want in the Senate to have anything happen quick. 
And so you could get a deal uh, uh, today if you can keep these 10 Republicans paired with the with the Democrats and, and get cloture and vote on a bill this month right now. Yep. And then yeah. you can have recon- another bite at the apple in reconciliation and maybe another bite at the apple with a, another reconciliation later this year. Wow, Rick, right. you are you you're sounding optimistic to me, but and I'm I'm hoping you're right. And I, I love when you talk about cloture; it warms my heart. Um, we are going to be talking more about this issue. Um, we also want to talk about the good news about the vaccine that Charlie mentioned, um, and we also are later going to be talking about the Reddit rebellion. Um, that is something that we have heard little out of the White House at this point. So curious to see why they have been reluctant to step into this. Um, this is Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I am Jeannie Shianzano in for Kevin Cirilli. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jeannie Shianzano in for Kevin Cirilli. And here with me, as always, is Rick Davis, Bloomberg political contributor and former Alaska Senator Mark Begich. Um, As we were talking about, uh, there's some good news on the pandemic vaccine front In addition, in a White House press briefing today, senior advisor to the White House COVID-19 response team, Andy Slavitt, announced that the U.S. government is investing $231.8 million to ramp up production from an Australian manufacturer of an at-home COVID-19 test that doesn't require a prescription. We have sound on that. The schedule, if it were to be approved under EUA, would be about 100,000, 100 million doses by the end of the second quarter. That's the end of June. And, uh, you know, I would not at this point be overly confident that those doses would, would come evenly. Dr. Anthony Fauci was also at the briefing and he spoke on the vaccines as well. We have sound on that. The first priority will always be to get the people who've gotten their first doses to get their second doses. And then additional doses will be given to the next group of people who will get their first doses. In this way, there are no doses that are hanging around. A dose that's available is going to go into someone's arm. And as, as we were talking about really positive news that the U.S. hit this milestone with more vaccinated than cases. And so, Senator, let me ask you, how would you rate the administration's 
approach so far, given it's only been, I think, a week and a half now to fighting the pandemic. And since you do, as, as you and Rick were talking about, have so much um, experience at the state and local level, how is the vaccine rollout going at the state level as well? As someone in New York, it's somebody it's something we've been talking an awful lot about here. Well, I, I will say this, you know, you're right. There's only been about nine days in office, so you got to take, you know, take it for what it is. I think they inherited a, you know, a broken uh, distribution center. I'm not, I think, distribution system. I think they, you know, the, the vaccines were rolling out in record time in the sense of development of which was good. Uh, but for some reason, the distribution was not focused on. In Alaska, I think we're now number one when it comes to per capita vaccinations uh, in two reasons. Uh, in Alaska, we've tried to push it out as quickly as possible. We have limited doses, so we have, like everyone else's problems, people who want them. But we also have a large tribal uh, population, and they have been able to receive um, you know, doses in a different format, meaning through the Indian Health Service and so forth. But what's important is they opened up their uh, distribution to anyone over 18 years old. And within the tribal community, they are three times more likely to get um, the virus. So it's kind of a kind of a perfect storm in a way of how it's being delivered, and we're getting a high number of participants, which is good. But, it, you know, it's all about logistics. You know, they, I think this is the biggest challenge that the federal government has because every state has their own method of doing it. And the reality is you got to get this vaccine out as quickly as possible. And I think it was Seattle was a great example where a freezer broke and they had to get 1,600 doses out and they put the word out and people just came and they got them done. They didn't waste it. So I think they got to get a handle on the distribution, but they weren't given this uh, system in a very good form uh, when they came into office. And again, only about nine days in office. Senator, this Rick, I mean, you make a really good point about the logistical uh, challenges that, that exist. And we heard a lot about that when when we were first getting the notion that we were going to be able to roll out these hundreds of millions of doses of a vaccine. And, and I would think Alaska would be logistically one of the most difficult in the country um, because of the, the distribution of its population, the isolation of tribal communities. Uh, and uh, and so give us a sense as to how the state and localities have done such a good job, because, I mean, we hear uh, these numbers about inoculation rates in Alaska. I think it's, it's some of the states uh, that have much more resources than Alaska has to work with are envious. What, what's been the, right. the secret sauce in Alaska to be able to get these people shots in the arm? Well, first off, you know, again, there is still a challenge like anywhere in Alaska. Keep in mind the size of the state. Right. You go from Anchorage to Barrow, it's 700 miles by air. and You're still in uh, 260 of our communities are not accessible other than by plane. So first is in rural communities, where there's a high population of Alaska Native community. They've been able to focus on 18 and above. So they've just gone in and said, OK, everyone, every dose we get, we're going to make sure we get as many people as possible because those small enclosed communities are critical to deal with immediately. In, in the more urban areas, uh, they have gone through the process of ensuring that people know they've had you know, population limitations, meaning certain age groups and so forth and risk factors uh, and, and medical personnel, but they've been doing it in a very systematic way. Now, saying that, 
we're like everyone else. We have huge populations that are anxiously awaiting more. And there are some efforts I know as of last night being discussed to now go into some of the more impoverished areas, actually mobile to go there in order to get the populations that have a higher risk but are not necessarily coming into locations because they can't or accessibility. So it's kind of flexing the ability to distribute. And, you know, some of these states were, uh, I don't want to say they were delaying, but they were confused on, you know, who do we do first? What should we do? Right. Senator, should that make is... Make a list and go. <laughs> yeah, Senator, that, that that is so fascinating to hear you describe what is going on in Alaska and some of these more rural areas. This is Sound On. I am Jeannie Shanzano filling in for Kevin Cirilli. On Sunday, Jared Bernstein, a member of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisers, expressed confidence in U.S. market regulators, saying that speculation, volatility are a constant, as he said, in markets. We have sound on that. The president's main concern there is that the regulator in charge, the SEC, Security and Exchange Commission, has to make sure not that there's no volatility and speculation in the market, that's a constant, but that the underlying plumbing of the financial markets remains sound. While Senator Elizabeth Warren said a broker deal like Robin Hood that invites a lot of individual investors needs to operate under some basic rules. We have sound on that. It's not about protecting people from making bad trades. It's about keeping the playing field level. You can't do that in the middle of a trading cycle. And here with me and Rick Davis, as always, we want to welcome Norm Champ, partner at Kirkland & Ellis and former director of the Division of Investment Management at the SEC. So, Norm, let me just ask you, based on what we were just hearing from both Bernstein and Warren, Are the underlying, as Bernstein said, is the underlying plumbing of the financial markets, does that remain sound or has this story sort of thrown a monkey wrench into that? Oh, I think so. Thanks so much for having me. I think the underlying plumbing is just fine. Um, You know, the, the best part of that statement was, look, we've had these short squeezes. We've had these events in the past. Frankly, you know, there's times when things just sort of cruise up and up and up, which generally they have been, where traders actually prefer more volatility. So there's our markets are very deep. They're very liquid. You've seen a real interesting development with the SPACs over the last year. That's going to result in more public companies. One thing we've been battling is actually fewer public companies in the U.S. We have half as many as we had 20 years ago, and IPOs have been way down. But the capital market's been booming over the last couple of years, and that's getting more companies in the market. Our markets are still the envy of the rest of the world. Our markets have financed, you name it, Google, Facebook, Amazon, right? Those companies aren't rising in other countries. They're rising here because of the depth and breadth of our markets. Norm, this is Rick Davis. Uh, thank you so much for being on the program today. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. Uh, is is it at all an effect in the SEC uh, that it doesn't have a, a, a Senate-confirmed chair right now? Gary Gensler has been nominated but not confirmed. Uh, does that matter in a situation like this where either communication to the market or management within the regulatory agency is suffering? That's a great question, Rick. I mean, certainly – it would be better if we had a confirmed chair right at the moment. Um, 
But Alison Lee is the acting chair, an experienced hand as a commissioner. I think the apparatus that, remember, the actual group of people who change jobs at the top of the SEC and from one administration to the other is extremely small. It's the five commissioners and call it another, you know, maybe 50 people, something like that, 50 or 100 out of a 4,500 person agency. So they have a lot of career apparatus there, people that I think are well capable of going out and trying to figure this out, right? And, And I'm certain that they are out there, you know, getting the market data, right? They can get all this data of all the trading that's been going on. And I'm sure they're trying to analyze it and figure out exactly what's been happening over the last couple of weeks. That's the first thing is, you know, just all this publicity, all these stories. If I was back there, first things first, let's get the facts of what exactly has happened. Now, that's my follow-on conversation with you I'd like to have because uh, – the SEC did put out a statement saying that they want to probe market activity for misconduct. Uh, and uh, these are you know, regulated entities. There are certain rules. Um, there are no rules against momentum trading, but there are rules against pump and dump. Where are we in this? I mean, it seems to me that we sort of vacillate to some degree back and forth in that scenario. There's no question. You, your lead in there, I heard you know the reporter mentioning that now – GameStop's down 30%. Um, you know, this has features of that it looks, like, as you say, it's a fine line. People can pile in on momentum. People can sit around in chat rooms and talk about stocks and, you know, potentially go out and buy them. We saw this huge rise. We are now seeing, you know, the downside. I think one of the questions I'm sure that they want to figure out is, are we really talking about just individual trading out of these chat rooms, people who are talking and so forth, and then going and putting, you know, let's say their retail money into these names. Or I'm sure the big question they have is, are there other actors in the market who are potentially monitoring these trade rooms or watching the press or whatever, and are those actors helping push these names up? That that would be, I think, one of their first questions. Because to your point, got to figure out, exactly what's happening before you can even reach any kind of conclusion about whether there's something wrong happening. I don't think we need market structure changes out of this, but we need facts. The SEC's got to figure out the facts of what's going on. And Norm, what do you make of the fact that we haven't heard much specific out of the White House on this yet? Well, if you're, uh, you know, actually, I think that's wise. (laughs) I mean, if, if, (laughs) If I was in the White House, I think I'd be saying similar kind of stuff, right? The, the SEC's got the expertise. They've got the data. You know, FINRA, which is a self-regulatory organization for broker-dealers, FINRA has all the trading data for every day. Uh, and so I'm sure they're working very closely with FINRA. And I think if if I were in the White House shoes, I think I would also wait and let's see what the facts are, you know, because it, it's just there's been so much publicity and so much on the internet and you know suddenly you know even my kids want to talk about uh, you know what about this dad you know because i was at the sec you know we're seeing it everywhere and i think um i would be waiting to understand what the facts are because it's just no one knows 
Yeah. And, and Norm, I'm with you. My kids as well, they, they are usually not fascinated by Wall Street stories, but this one has caught their attention. And I think it's not only because it's GameStop and Reddit, but there's so much about it that they're, you know, sort of glued to the story, I think, like so many of us. So we want to ask Norm more. I think one of my questions has to do with this issue of collusion and so much more. So we are going to keep talking to Norm Champ, partner at Kirkland Ellis. I am Jeannie Shanzano, filling in for Kevin Cirilli, and this is Sound On on Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jeannie Shanzano in for Kevin Cirilli, uh, speaking as always with Rick Davis and Norm Champ, partner at Kirkland and Ellis and former director of the Division of Investment Management at the SEC. So, Norm, we have heard, of course, coming over the Bloomberg that Robinhood raised an additional um, investment of two, almost $2.5 billion with trading restrictions eased. So in your mind, um, do Robinhood and interactive brokers and the other sort of online popular brokerage firms, do they get through this unscathed? Well, I think I think trading through apps and trading through the Internet is it, it, I would, was going to say it's the future, but the future is already here, right? So <laughs> they, I do think they will. Um, and it's like everything else all of us are doing in our daily lives, right? You can now do most things at the click of an app. And I think it's here to stay. Uh, and I don't, this, if anything, this is probably going to accelerate the popularity. I think the one market structure thing that's quite interesting from all of this is uh, we had commissions, you know, commissions used to be fixed in this country um, and we, on, on stock uh, transactions, they became unfixed and they have drifted down steadily over the decades since and now really have gone to zero. And it's interesting, right, because it feels like that has also helped people get more active in trading as commissions have gone down. I wouldn't be surprised if the commission maybe thought about that and sort of is, you know, at least studied that development because it's been a long time coming. We're sort of now here finally to zero commissions. And Rick Davis, on this point, um, you know, one of the things that you and I have talked about um, and I am still of mixed feelings about is this question of when Robinhood restricted trading. Did you see that as somebody who's worked in this area? Did you see that as legitimate? Well, 
you're seeing them raise the money. I don't obviously have any particular facts about that, but I think in general, when you think about brokers, and this is true for all brokers, they have, under the rules, they have net capital requirements. They have to have a certain amount of capital on hand. When you're dealing with the kind of volume that the market's been dealing with across these names, um, I, it didn't surprise me that some of these brokers would slow it down just because they have to put out capital, you know, and they're part of clearing organizations, and there's a whole complex infrastructure behind uh, every broker in America. And so I would imagine it had something to do with that and people thinking about their liquidity, their net capital. So I, it, I wouldn't, it didn't surprise me. Hey, Norm. Uh, Rick Davis. Internet trading has democratized a lot of investment to some degree, and there's a, another democratization effort going on with uh, public markets. Um, uh, I would say some people call uh, the move towards SPACs, uh, uh, blank check companies, as a way of democratizing the IPO market. You wrote a book uh, called Going Public, My Adventures Inside the SEC and How to Prevent the Next Devastating Crisis. Um, can you give me your sense as to how you see the SPAC market and the explosion in activity there? So the capital markets, right, last couple of years, tremendous time for the capital markets, which had not been the case for, you know, quite some time before that. And I think the SEC should get some credit for, you know, in the last four years for uh, promoting our capital markets and trying to make access to them easier. You know, they are, they're the root of everything in this country. And the fact that we've opened them up to retail investors is also a huge positive, right? That retail investors are there and being able to participate in those markets and have more options. And I think that's what the SPACs represent, is they represent more opportunity to go out for people to start a blank check company and then go out and look for a merger partner who will become a public company. And as I mentioned earlier, we've been short on public companies. The costs of being a public company are very high, uh, and the costs of IPOs are very high. So you can see the attraction for the blank check companies to have more public companies. And I think you know Chair Clayton, from the very beginning, cited some of those same statistics that we have half the public companies that we had 20 years ago. And I think you're, we're going to have more public companies. And that's important because most people, most retail investors in this country access the markets through mutual funds. And those mutual funds typically have to buy liquid public company names. They can't buy private investments. Uh, so it's very important that we have more public companies, more choice, so that retail investors can have wider options in their 401ks, their other plans, their own accounts, um, 529 plans, all of those places are primarily mutual funds. And we need more public companies to make sure that investors have good choices for investing. Norm, to follow up on that, um, it seems to me that uh, certainly on capacity right now, the SPAC market is is running circles around the IPO market. Are there things that either can be done through the regulatory environment or uh, with the exchanges to make IPOs more competitive right now and bring more companies to market? So it's a great question, Rick. I think that people have been looking at that issue again for 20 years as we've had declining uh, IPOs. It is expensive, uh, you know, to do an IPO in the U.S. Uh, and I would think that 
the, certainly the Clayton Commission, you know, the, the SEC under uh, Chair Clayton, tried multiple rule adjustments to help the IPO market and help um, make it easier. You're not quite seeing the impact of that, right, because obviously the SPACs have taken over and, and are the way that people are doing it. But it would be anything we could do to reduce the costs of IPOs uh, would help that side of the market as well and get us more companies through that channel. So, Norm, I, I want to ask you, um, when your kids are asking you, just to get back to the GameStop, um, which I can't get over this story, when they are asking you about this story, um, you know, down the line, what do you think is going to be the major takeaway when this story is ultimately written about this sort of stock mania that's, that's sort of taken over uh, so much of our popular conscience? What do you think the story and the major takeaway is going to be in your mind? I think it, it ties in with Rick's point about the democratization, right? I think that, again, I think the SEC is going to look hard at the facts and make sure it is just democratization. I suspect there may be other people in there trading and taking advantage of all this, uh, and I'm sure the SEC is going to look hard at that. Uh, but I think if you kind of look big picture, it reflects the continuing access, increased access of retail investors to our markets, and that can only be a positive, right? We may have gyrations on these names and so forth, but big picture, the more that all of us participate in these markets and have a stake in you know, capitalism and the free markets uh, and have a stake in the growth and the financing of businesses in this country, that creates jobs, that creates opportunities for all Americans. Uh, and when you have those vibrant markets that are generating employers, generating companies that are creating jobs, that helps everyone. And it's the sort of, you know, lifts all boats uh, philosophy. Uh, so I think broadly, it's a, it's a good story. Again, we'll have to see what the details are of these particular situations. But, but more broadly, I think the more of our fellow citizens who participate in these markets, the better, uh, and the better for the economic health of the country. And, and based on your work in the SEC, is the SEC uh, equipped um, at this point uh, to address what's going on in social media, Reddit, and these other places vis-a-vis -vis the market? And I ask that because it's something we always ask about the courts, for instance. Many of the people within the court system don't have the knowledge in terms of how to address some of what's going on in social media. So are you confident that that does exist in the SEC? And if regulation is necessary, they're well poised and positioned to do that? So it's a tremendous question. I, I've been asked this on a number of different shows. I think it's very complicated, right? Looking into the social media platforms, there's obviously all sorts of privacy concerns, um, lots of First Amendment concerns and privacy concerns around those platforms. I think the SEC understands the markets and has more knowledge of the markets than anyone, and in particular the people there who have decades of experience in these markets and understand them. You know, they, under they forgot more about these markets than the rest of us will ever learn. So I think they've got the market expertise. The interaction with the social media platforms is obviously you know, a new thing. On the other hand, you know, we've had, there were prior versions of this newsletters people would send out to try to you know, get certain stocks uh, going. And, it, you know, so there have also there have been lower tech versions of all this, and I'm confident the SEC can adapt itself uh, to, to 
at these issues around the platforms. Norm, speed question. Uh, does uh, Wall Street, with all this activity going on, uh, run the risk of a sort of Occupy Wall Street movement? Uh, we've been talking about the democratization of investing. Uh, are we entering another period where there's going to be sort of a populist revolt against Wall Street? Uh, I don't know, Rick. I, you know, I've obviously seen some, you know, there are some stories suggesting that. I think, I guess the other thing that I would warn against is I don't think this should be the moment for additional laws or rules around the markets, right? I, I, great we, great we, plug. Yeah. And, and I want to thank so much um, our guests. And, and, and Rick, I, I love the speed questions. I want to thank Norm Champ, partner at Kirkland & Ellis. And I, of course, want to thank Senator Mark Begich from Alaska. And I always want to thank uh, my partner in crime, Rick Davis, Bloomberg contributor. I am Jeannie Shanzano, filling in for Kevin Cirilli. And this is Sound On on Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.